Daniel chapter 3. Hear the word of God. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width, width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, 
Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own God. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amidst, amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. That is the word of the Lord. It endures forever. And may God bless it as we hear it read. You know, this is uh, one of those passages of Scripture that you wonder why they have to repeat everything five and six times. (laughs) Uh, But uh, it is God's word. And in that repetition, we gain a sense of what is important to take note of. And if there was anything that was repeated more than anything in this passage is that phrase, the burning, fiery furnace. And that is set before us for us to understand that this was not just simply a trial of faith, that this was a real 
and horrible experience of persecution that these men of God had to endure. And they were faithful in that sense to the end of it, being cast into it. But I want to say that even as we read this story and understand that God delivered them from it, that God honored their faithfulness to Him, that there is a danger of simplistic thinking that God blesses faithfulness from our perspective of how we consider God blessing faithfulness. God does bless faithfulness, but not always in the manner in which we think. Especially when we look at at these three godly men being delivered from their persecution. There are others who were faithful to the end and did not experience the same deliverance. Abel, Stephen, James, and as we were watching this afternoon, uh, Nate uh, Saint and Jim Elliott and uh, the other three men who were killed. God did bless their faithfulness in the wives and children who came after them (laughs) to meet with those families and those quote-unquote savages in Ecuador. He blessed their faithfulness with the saving of another people and tribe and tongue. But it's in a different way, isn't it? I think it's important to note that as we look at this particular chapter and as we regard and consider this this story, that uh, a few things need to be in our mind. And again, and preeminently, that when we're reading through the whole account of Daniel, it isn't just that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and their faithfulness is, is the main focus for us to take note of. What is of greater significance for us ever to keep before our eyes is the faithfulness of God to His beloved people. Even as we may think God at first abandoned Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, their names mentioned so often there, as He abandoned them to the fiery furnace, He really didn't abandon them. He was with them in their sufferings and in their persecutions and hardships. And though the obedience of these men stand out, even Nebuchadnezzar had to ask, uh, uh, respond and witness this. It was God who saved them. It was God who delivered them. I think another thing to bear in mind, because we can become increasingly... uh, mesmerized by the opportunities given to Nebuchadnezzar and the confessions that he makes of God, that we want to be careful not to think that the experiences that he has with God equate to true conversion. (laughs) Religious experience does not always mean that someone is converted. And especially when people make these rash vows in the moments in their life when things are going wrong, and you'll hear it with many people who will cry out to God, and God will hear them at times and deliver them, especially if they make those kind of vows that, I I will follow you, I'll go to church, I'll start doing that. And we, we may think that through that experience that they have with God, that they are suddenly converted. That's not always the case. In fact... 
I, I dare to say it, it might even be rarely the case. Nebuchadnezzar's heart was shaken in the previous chapter by Daniel who could tell him his dream and interpret it for him. And he acclaimed Daniel, even rewarded him for it. But even though his heart was shaken, it was not renewed. His confession that he makes at the end of chapter 2 about Daniel and the greatness of his God being the Lord of kings and the revealer of secrets gets lost very quickly in this chapter, doesn't it? It didn't carry him very far. In fact, I would say that it served to harden his heart more against God as he sought to promote himself and further the blasphemy and idolatry of his own soul. In fact, I think in some ways this chapter brings out that his experience with God in the previous chapter motivated his cynicism and persecution against Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. As their their true faith revealed his false confession. That's what you see unfolding. But I think it's also important to see here, and we're going to see the same with Daniel in chapter 6, when he must be Uh, enduring the uh, den of lions, that we as God's people, especially in our time and day, that we see the chief means that God uses to deprive us and to move us away from secular worldly affections. And one of the great dangers, if you know, this takes place after Daniel and his three friends have been elevated by the world and placed into positions of prominence over other men. These who were made captives by this same king are suddenly rewarded because they did something honorable for the king. That the dangers of Secularism and worldliness were even increased in their lives. That God immediately used a weighty, fiery trial of persecution to deprive them, to challenge them, but to deprive them of growing in those worldly affections. And for us to realize that such fiery trials that lead us into persecution are often the Father's pruning knife at work in our lives to bring forth more of the fruit of faith and righteousness in Christ. We hear that from Peter. He says that these trials, they're refining your faith. They're testing your faith that it might be as pure as gold. There are fiery trials. There are heavy, weighty trials. But this is the Father's way of refining you. John Calvin said of this and in truth of the way of God's church and of us as believers that the church of Christ has been so constituted from the beginning that death has been the way to life and the cross, the path to victory. And isn't that true? 
that through the death of Christ and through the cross that He endured on our, on our, on, on our behalf, life and victory have been opened up to us. And remember the words of Jesus that the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Never forget that even as we are reading of the increasing measure of honor and, and uh, reward that is set upon Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, let us never forget they're still captives. <laughs> they're still strangers in a foreign land. They are still in the wilderness of sin and death until they reach glory. And I think this chapter brings to truth that light that death is the way to life, the cross, the path to victory. One of the great things that we see here, and and the first thing we want to consider is the great pressure that the world puts on us to conform to their ways. I want you to consider that in the from this chapter. We, we heard it this morning, did we not, in that time of covenant renewal. That's why we turned there uh, this morning from Romans chapter 12, where because of the mercies of God that we are called to present our bodies a living sacrifice, that we may know that perfect and acceptable uh, and uh, pleasing will of God. And the very first imperative that meets you when he says that, what's the first thing that meets us? Verse 2, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. We often think when we look at verse 2, how many of you can say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may know what is that perfect and acceptable, pleasing will of God. Most of us, when we look at that verse, we think and we're drawn to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we think we've got to, we've got to guard our mind and we've got to make sure that we're renewing our mind. But that's not the imperative. There's two imperatives in that verse. Romans 12.2 The first is, do not be conformed. And the second is, but be transformed. And how is it that, that we are to obey and take up those two imperatives where we're not being conformed to this world, but we are being transformed. We are to use our mind that is being renewed by the Holy Spirit. We're not the ones renewing our mind. We can help in the renewing of our mind by giving ourselves over to the Word of God and understanding how it is to be the rule and standard for how we live and walk and what we believe, how we give our life over to God. But it is the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God and renews your mind so that you can obey those imperatives. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. It's so important to understand that truth. The Spirit has renewed our mind so that we will not 
be conformed. And that's what you see here with, with Hananiah, with Mishael, Azariah. They're battling that pressure to be conformed to the world. And it's a real fiery furnace. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to sit back and say, well, I, I, I'm not being pressured at all to follow the world. I, I, if you have that thought, you're, you're walking on a dangerous ground. The commandment, do not be conformed, is issued because the world, whether explicitly or implicitly, and and whether outright or subtly, (laughs) or whether determined or sometimes unaware, the world around us is always striving against God. It is always striving against Christ and His gospel. It is always striving against the world. Don't neglect that. There is always from the world this pressure to be conformed to its ways. It meets you. It meets you so powerfully in the media, in education, in advertising. I've noticed even with with even our cell phone plans, it, it, it's come out trying to entice you to purchase all of these products in support of pride. It's always there before you. Be conformed to the world and what it is promoting. And it's you know, we saw in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends faced that with the brainwashing techniques. And in chapter 2, they, they faced that same, be conformed through threats of death. And here in chapter 3, it is so explicit, the intense pressure laid upon them to conform to the idolatry and blasphemy of this world, or you will die the most horrible of deaths. <laughs> and, and that pressure to conform is the consequence of the enmity that does exist between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's continual warfare. And, and you know what Paul said about that warfare in Ephesians 6? What did he say? You need to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because you don't wrestle simply against flesh and blood. You're wrestling against powers and principalities and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That this is warfare that is before you. And you see what Nebuchadnezzar did in, in, pressuring, in pressuring Daniel and his three friends to conform. It's interesting, this is the one chapter where, where Daniel is, is not mentioned. Where is he? We don't know. <laughs> Did he conform? Was this a, a time of failing in his life? We don't know. Uh, he certainly had to be there. Nobody was exempt from it. Or maybe its focus is on these three men who stood in a different position. And perhaps, uh, unlike in chapter 6, when it's Daniel that's facing all of the pressure. 
that they're the ones that are the focus of persecution. But you look what he did. Conform to our image. And, and Nebuchadnezzar sets up this huge statue, this huge image of a man. We read there, uh, it's all set for us in cubic measurement, but this was, this was an image that was at least 90 feet tall. <laughs> 90 feet. That's, a, that's like three times the height of this building that we're in. Huge. But note where it's set up. It's set up in the plain of Dura. Now, we don't always understand the significance of that, but it's very, very close to where the Tower of Babel was built. Men setting up their images in defiance against God. And what Nebuchadnezzar did in setting up this image, particularly in that place, was was a repeat of what mankind had always been at from from the fall until his time. And it's what the world is continuing to do today. It's the Tower of Babel all over again. And his intent in setting up this image, as I mentioned last week, Nebuchadnezzar is foreshadowing Nietzsche. He is saying, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? That's what he's saying. It was defiance. He heard the interpretation of the dream that said that his image was going to be destroyed by the one who would come, the Lord Jesus. There was no humility from that. Instead, it's an attempt to to establish the legacy of His glory, which unfolds for us even more in chapter 4. It was also an attempt to unite. Did you capture the phrases there of all the people, verse 7, all the people, nations, and languages. I want everybody who's of all of the world to come together, to be together and united in this common worship of my image. Now, where do we hear those phrases, all the people, nations, and languages? Where do we hear that? Isn't that revelation? Isn't that what is spoken of in the great work that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing in building the kingdom of God and ensuring that within the kingdom of God, through the gospel work of Jesus Christ, there will be people from every nation and tribe and language. And you see, Nebuchadnezzar is standing in defiance to that and saying, no, I have the power to unite all people as one. And I will make this unity happen with the threat of death to those who won't have any part of it. Isn't that still happening today? <laughs> you, you, you can't tolerate us. Well, the only thing we won't tolerate is your intolerance. <laughs> Join with us or we'll destroy your life. Speak against us, and we'll have a media attention against you that will make your life miserable. 
It's the same thing over and over again. Conform to our image. Conform to our religion. In, in doing this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was not simply forcing his subjects to give up and change their deities or religions. In many ways, he followed Rome's idealism. He wanted them more just to acknowledge his as a priority. We're not saying you can't worship your God. Just make sure you worship ours. And you understand that with the unity of the people that this is the greater, the greater idealism. I often think that is part of the disguise of the kind of multiculturalism that is strived for even in our land. And I think that's some something that's behind the guise of of separation of church and state. Let's keep the public sphere free of your religion. You can believe what you want. Don't force it on the public. All the while, the public is forcing their beliefs on everyone. You see this fanfare that Nebuchadnezzar has surrounding it. And how many times did we read, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, symphony, with all kinds of music, worship. <laughs> we read that four times, didn't we? <laughs> it's repeated. It's because he surrounded his religious conformity with a whole lot of fanfare. Again, the parallels of our day of parades and ceremonies and demonstrations. I I was reflecting back uh, ten years ago, the Winter Olympics that were held in Vancouver. How many of you watched the opening and closing ceremonies of those Olympics? It is really something to take in. Even the mascots. They were all... It was a a religious ceremony of of native spiritualism and and of the the whole uh, spiritualism of of man being elevated as, as the supreme creature. And all under the guise of world unity and coming together in celebration of our physical beings. You know, we, we often overlook what is happening with these things. And we attribute it to ceremony. But it is the world with its fanfare saying, conform, conform. Think about the pride parades. Or the BLM agenda and everyone feeling the pressure to kneel. What is behind that? And how many have actually stepped back? Not to deal... I'm not saying we don't have the issues of prejudice in our day to deal with. Yes, we do. But has anybody stepped back to look 
at, at the manifesto of some of these organizations to see what they actually are promoting. We're, we're blinded by this pressure to conform because if you don't, Neil, then you're not with us. <laughs> it happens. You're not in the parade. Well, we're going to boycott. Conform or else. And that pressure is backed up with those threats. I have a fiery furnace waiting for you. Resist conforming. And my dear friends, you will find that you will have many accuse you. Did you notice who were the accusers of Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. They were the very men who in chapter 2, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah rescued from the king's decree of death. (laughs) Isn't that irony? (laughs) That the very ones who were helped by Daniel and his friends are the first ones to come forward and accuse mercilessly accuse these men of not conforming to the king's image. When you look at their charges in verse verse 12, they've not paid due regard to you, O king. Well, that is false. They showed up like everyone else. They recognized the king's orders needed to be obeyed to the degree that it didn't disobey God. They were the ones who respected the king's authority to a measure. And, and they even say that. You know, you, you have the right to throw us into the furnace. Go ahead. <laughs> they do not serve your gods. That's the charge against them. And you know what they said? That's right. <laughs> we do not serve your gods. Because they understood What was happening was the world was saying, conform or we'll destroy you. They wanted, these Chaldeans wanted to nullify any influence that God's kingdom would have over them. And they did it under the guise of loyalty and obedience. That's pressure. And that's what we face, my dear friends. And we need to understand that this kind of blasphemy and this kind of idolatry are deeply rooted in the sinful heart of man. They're deeply rooted within the society in which we live. And they surface mostly when men and not God becomes the center of our activities. And we see, we see again, only three of the Jews not bowing. There were others there. The company that went with Daniel and his friends, they they no doubt found position under the king's realm. But with all of the fanfare and with all of the pressure and with all of the threats, how easy it is for that spectacular event to move people but not the heart. This is classic Romans 1, 20 to 25. 
where they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. My friends, that's what faces us today. And how do we respond to this? Well, here again is where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah come and, and show us what it means for the just to live by faith. That even today, we who have been redeemed in Christ, we are the just ones. We have the glory of Christ's atonement, having removed the condemnation for our sins. We have the glory of Christ's righteousness uh, over, covering over us that, that we are dressed in the beauty of His holiness. We are the just ones. And how shall we live in such a time as this? We live by faith in the Son of God who has loved us and given His life for us. You know, when I was reading and studying this, this chapter this past week, I often thought, how would I respond to such persecution? And, and you know, it, it struck me that the real trial of faith is not simply withstanding persecution. The real trial of our faith, it comes out here with, in verse 17 and 18. The real trial of our faith comes in confessing Christ in our persecution. That's, that's the thing that, that happens here. And, and indeed, that's what the Lord Jesus stressed for us when in, in Matthew chapter 10, when He tells us that we're not to fear those who uh, can kill the body but not the soul. Rather, we are to fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus goes on to encourage us to know that, that you, you are of more value than those sparrows who fall dead at the Father's will. That God Himself is looking to you as children and wanting you to stand strong, not in the fear of men, but in the fear of the Lord. And then He goes on in Matthew 10, here in verses 32 and 33 to say this. Not just that you're standing there. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men. That the greater struggle in persecution is not just standing there and taking it, but standing there and confessing Christ. Making His name known. Because whoever confesses me before men, Jesus says, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do you wonder why Peter wept bitterly after he denied his Lord three times? I have no doubt believing he understood he failed in that fiery test of persecution in the high priest court. I have no doubt believing that those words of Christ were ringing through his ears, 
I've denied my Lord. Isn't it wonderful that it's not an unforgivable sin? That Christ even forgave him of it. And he will us. But it's, it's, it's powerful to see that as Nebuchadnezzar threatened these three godly men in verse 15, and, and as the fierceness of his rage increased against them, they confessed their God before him. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. You, you have power over the body. You don't have power over the soul. If that's the case, you want to throw us into the fiery furnace, you want to defy God, you want to strike out against our God, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, it's up to the will of God. If not, let it be known to you, O King, we do not serve your gods. We will not worship the gold image which you have set up. We do not serve your gods. Where do those words come from in the Old Testament that really ring true in, in our ears? Joshua twenty four fifteen. Therefore, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You need to choose, O Israel, whether you're going to pursue the gods, the false gods, the idols of your fathers, or whether you're going to pursue the idols of this world or the idols of the Amorites, you need to choose, Israel, whose gods you are going to follow. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's what they were saying. We do not serve your gods. A confession of faith. And they set it in such powerful parameters. They recognize God has not necessarily revealed to them if they're going to be delivered. God's will, if they're thrown into the furnace, they're ready. We have to die for our God. We will. And it shows us something. God, and it comes back to this point, what would I do in that situation? Would I have the strength to withstand and make that true confession of Christ in persecution? I want to say to you, dear friends, God has promised you grace to meet you in such times. God has not promised us grace to face things that we might imagine. He has promised grace to sustain us in actual situations. And it's like, if you will, it's like that manna that came to Israel that they had to wait upon God to bring it forth the next day to sustain them for that day. And you recall in Exodus 16, some of Israel did not trust God to bring forth His grace in the coming days, so they gathered much and tried to store it in their tent overnight. And what happened to it? (laughs) It became full of worms. It, It rotted overnight. Because God said, you need to trust Me that My grace will meet you tomorrow and give in all sufficiency what you need for each day. The just live by faith. And how powerful is that when it comes 
to such times. You know, the great battle here is not with necessarily the world around us persecuting us. The greater battle is within our heart. Do we believe God over men? Do we believe, like Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 15, he said, look, if you compromise, if you conform to this, I will bless you. (laughs) I'll take care of you. I'm sure they're already seeing, no, you know what, this is twice that this has happened. That you, in a fit of rage, put a death sentence over people to do what you wanted them to do. How often does the world try to say that that same thing? We'll bless you with peace if you conform. We'll punish you with ruin if you don't. If you do not. And and like like these three men, do we believe Christ, who promises to confess us? before the Father and the angels? Or do we fear the men? Because there's something in their confession that made them strong. And this is where you have to be prepared with that good confession before men. They looked and recognized. They rested in who God is. Our God is able to deliver us from your hand because our God is omnipotent. But our God is also omniscient. And His purposes are such, this is what they're saying, we will submit to His will and not yours. We will submit to what our God has purposed and planned, not what you have. Like what Job said in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet I will what? I will trust him. And that is their confession. Because they understood this, and I was thinking of this in respect of the movie, The End of the Spear. That it was something to see the wives of those men who died rising up and understanding that the death of their husbands did not mean that they failed. Don't we think that? Because it didn't end well, they failed. No, like Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra, they understood if they were to die, that was an indication of God's will. That's faith. And we know, I, I, I'm one who believes preeminently this, we know that these three men set their faith firmly upon the Messiah. Because who met them there? <laughs> isn't, that a, isn't that a real testimony that the saints of the Old Testament were believing in Christ? Because He is the one who comes and meets them in the midst of of the fiery furnace. Emmanuel. It comes back to that truth that God has not promised to keep us from such fires. He's the one who brings them across our path to refine our faith, to make it shine forth like gold. No, what He has promised is to be with us in them. And that, that's the picture we're given here with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
And, and, and that's the reality of what it means to be in Christ, in union with Him. Christ could not be separated from them. And, and we have that testimony in Hebrews 13, uh, where He says, He Himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And our response to that truth of Emmanuel, that God is with us, that Christ is not forsaking us, our response is in Hebrews 13.6, And so we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? (laughs) And, And these men lived that truth out even unto death. Because as faithful as they were unto death, Christ, the faithful one, was greater. We marvel at their faithfulness under fire. But they were standing in the strength of one who was greater and whose faithfulness far exceeded theirs. Jesus Christ, the one who passed through death and judgment, the one who was forsaken that we should never be forsaken. The one who is acclaimed as faithful and obedient even to the death of the cross. The one who was bruised by God for our iniquities. Who endured the fullness of God's wrath in our place. Who died to conquer our enemies. Is the one in whose faithfulness we stand and find our strength. And that was so for these men. They did not conform to the world. They boldly confessed, we will not serve your gods. In fact, I said that wrong. They boldly confessed, we do not serve your gods. And they were able to do that because they were standing strong in the Lord power of His might. And I encourage you, dear friends, in a day when the pressure to conform to the world surrounds and meets us every day, stand strong in the Lord. Stand strong in His might. And you will be able to say, like Joshua, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves whom you will serve. Whether it is the gods which your fathers served or the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let us pray.